on Plain Spoken, a lot of the stuff that I cover deals with law, legal stuff, and that is not my area of expertise. I have a brain that has a very hard time holding on to these details and procedures and the terminology. I need help. And from the very beginning, I've been aware that there are some key players that um, are kind of in the middle of this. So Dan Dalton of Dalton and Tomich has inserted himself in the middle of all this and has defended a lot of churches, represented a lot of churches in, in their efforts to get out. The National Center for Life and Liberty uh, with Gibbs and Bailey and others have also had their own approach in annual conferences doing these larger kind of class action things. But they are not the only lawyers in the mix. And um, I recently discovered... Uh, Lloyd Lunsford, who I'm going to be interviewing today, and he has his own expertise, and I'm going to give him a formal intro here in a second, but just something to keep in mind as we get into this conversation with, with law is, one, I'm not very smart, and so you're going to have to read between the lines of my stupid questions to kind of get the, the wisdom from, from Lloyd that, that you and your church need. But secondly, law, it seems to me, it, we have this notion that it's an objective dispassionate standard that can be interpreted the same way by reasonable minds. And what I have found as I've talked to different lawyers and, and professionals in law is that it, it's really very difficult to come to a shared notion about much of anything. And that's, of course, what a, a court case is about, is matching the words that we have ensconced in American law and applying that to the real world and seeing what principles and, and forms of reasoning prevail. So it's very intimidating for good reason, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't even try and understand it and throw up our hands and go, it's, it's lost. Rather, we have to do the best with the authority and trust given us to make good decisions with that which has been entrusted to us, namely the local church, because if we just sit and do nothing, well, I, I think that's often to the benefit of Satan. So if you are in a church that is wanting to explore options for disaffiliation, your conference has closed the door and you have prayerfully worked through 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the warnings of litigation, and you're just wanting to, to look at the different options, what's going on, I think this will be a really good conversation for you. So I'd, I would urge you to just uh, tune in and just be in a very gracious spirit with a, a not very smart host and a, a difficult topic, and, and we'll see if the Lord um, brings about some, some good in some people's lives through this. So let, let me give a proper intro here. My, my guest today is Lloyd Lunsford Esquire. He is an attorney with a large Baton Rouge, Louisiana-based firm who has practiced law for almost 40 years. Among his specialties is church property law. He served as the general editor of A Guide to Church Property Law. It's a 475-page treatise published in 2010. He's been advised and represented scores of local churches from coast to coast in several mainline denominations as they've uh, navigated denominational exits and their denominations related property trust claims. He's represented Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Methodist churches in 35 different states, ranging from 20 members to 25,000 members, with the value of local church assets ranging from just a few hundred thousand dollars to over a hundred million dollars. So he's been all over the place. Since 2019, he's kept busy primarily representing Methodist churches that have gone through the paragraph 2553 disaffiliation process, which we're all familiar with by now, hopefully. As a boy, Lloyd attended a Methodist Sunday school where the early seeds of faith were planted in him, so he knows a little bit about us Methodists. As a teenager, those seeds bore fruit as he came to personal faith in Christ Jesus through the ministry of Billy Graham. So as a young man, Lloyd was married in a United Methodist Church. 
And before attending law school, Lloyd worked on Capitol Hill and then served on the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ. I think nowadays it's called Crew. After a lengthy full-time legal career, he's now semi-retired. He tells me that his favorite court has become the tennis court. Uh, he, he's <laughs> to, be, to be near their grandchildren, he and his wife, Cynthia, now make their home on the shore of a lake in the Blue Ridge Mountains of western North Carolina. So he's, he's in a privileged place to speak to us today, both materially and in knowledge. Uh, Lloyd, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing, brother? Is it a good day? Uh, thank you very much, Jeff. It's a pleasure being with you. It's an excellent day. Very good. Yes, we uh, we were able to connect finally after uh, Zoom is a very simple platform, but kind of gets complicated sometimes. <laughs> but it's an amazing thing that you can be in the Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina, and I can be in northeastern Oklahoma, and we can connect and, and have a conversation like this. So just uh, feeling very blessed this morning. So thank you for taking the time. You and I have been uh, talking privately. You've been helping me speak in a, a little bit more informed manner about the legal affairs in Oklahoma as we are approaching. We've already had a court case with Oklahoma First Church. Church of the Servant is another large church in Oklahoma City that's filed against the conference. A lot of different opinions on what's going on. Um, you've helped me understand ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, and then uh, I've had some other lawyer friends uh, that have kind of uh, added some nuance and talked about neutral principles law. Not we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But I, I gave a brief intro about you and your experience in this part of law. Uh, you referenced a tome that you edited or contributed to. Do you have that handy? Okay, that's the book right there, A Guide to Church Property Law, second edition. Oh, and look at your name right on the front there. So did you author the whole thing? Well, the uh, the original concept was it would be an anthology with several contributors uh, whose names would appear next to their contributing chapters. Mm -hmm. And I ended up writing about two-thirds of it. And okay. so the publishers thought it would be awkward for my name to appear so frequently so they said, why don't we make you general editor and put your name up front on the cover? Yeah. And I was happy to oblige. I, I did it as a service, waived any royalty interest. So I have no pecuniary motive to selling books. Uh, it's, um, uh, I think, a very useful uh, analysis, mostly in conversational English, yeah. about this unusual niche area of the law. Mm -hmm. Uh, for which there's been a spate of cases about every 30 years going back for 200 years in American history. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. Uh, and um, uh, and I think it's, it, it's, I think it's available on Amazon.com for those interested. So it is still being sold. And do you think it, it would be useful for local churches that are looking at uh, litigation to, to consider? I mean, would it be helpful in that situation or is it more for law nerds? Well, no, it's it's written with a general lay audience in mind. In fact, there's a specific chapter uh, devoted to Methodists, uh, although it was published before 2553 mm -hmm. was ever conceived, much less added to the, the Book of Discipline, uh, but it has some thoughts from Thomas Oden uh, and, and, and others. Oh, um, interesting. But, but it, it deals with uh, more fundamental issues of, of common interest to whether you're Presbyterian, Episcopal, Methodist, AME, or, or other uh, uh, religious uh, traditions in this, this area of, of uh, church property rights. Okay. Um, 
Well, I'm going to make sure to have a link to your book on Amazon for anyone who wants to think about purchasing it because it, it's always good to do your homework and your research. So um, a, a part of understanding what a local church should do right now is just understanding the landscape right now in the U.S. And of course, the picture is too big for us to, to cover very briefly, but um, there are I think are five or six larger NCLL lawsuits going on dif in different annual conferences like Florida, North Carolina, and Baltimore, Washington, I think are the ones that I know about, but I, I know that there are others. There's also Dan Dalton, who's who's served churches like Asbury United Meth or former Methodist in, in Tulsa, or Jonesboro Methodist, or Searcy in uh, Arkansas, which of course uh, Jonesboro didn't go very well. But in North Georgia, there's been some dust-ups as the conference tried to suspend the disaffiliation process, and the courts got involved and said, no, you have to do what has been decided will be done. There have been, uh, there's been a defeat in North Carolina as the judge uh, dismissed the lawsuit, I believe, and I forget on which, which grounds. There have also been um, – uh, well, I covered one case in Louisiana that I'm thinking you're connected to. What other – do you have ongoing cases right now um, that are in the United Methodist Church? Are there any churches that, that people should or would know about that you're representing in court? Well, there's uh, major litigation in the uh, West Florida, South Alabama conference involving uh, Harvest Church in, in Dothan, okay. uh, where my firm is representing uh, the local church. And uh, while um, I'm not involved uh, as counsel of record uh, in the SMU litigation mm -hmm. um, in, in uh, the Texas Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals just issued a major opinion in that case earlier this week. Um, you, you mentioned most of the major cases uh, involving uh, Methodist entities that have been filed or, or pending, mm -hmm. uh, and it may seem like there's litigation all over the place when you list them all together like that. Mm -hmm. But look, looking at it from a 30,000-foot level, uh, Methodist litigation has generally been the exception rather than the rule. Most of the reported cases... Um, on the law books have been Episcopalian or Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. um, the, the Methodist cases are comparatively few in number, uh, primarily for, for two reasons, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, one, the, the Methodists were able to sort of kick the can down the road more effectively on these matters of human sexuality because they would only meet legislatively in general conference once every four years. Right. Whereas their Presbyterian and Episcopal uh, brothers and sisters would meet uh, either annually or, or, or every other year. Mm -hmm. And so it came to a boiling point a little bit quicker in, in the life of those denominations. Uh, secondly, I think uh, the reason that Methodist cases land in court with uh, relative infrequency uh, is because the the uh, UMC did something that the, the Episcopal Church and the main body of Presbyterians, the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, did not do. Uh, the UMC amended its constitution to provide for an alternative to litigation, um, hopefully, uh -huh. um, an administrative path to the exit door, uh, which was 2553, uh, paragraph 
uh, added in, in 2019. Mm -hmm. There was no similar provision in the Episcopal canons. And the only similar provision that existed in the Presbyterian constitution, the Book of uh, Order, as it's called, uh, was effective between 1983 and 1986 and, and expired or sunsetted then. Really? So contemporaneously, there was no alternative other than the courthouse door. Mm -hmm. Whereas Methodists have had an alternative, which in most cases, in most conferences, uh, has been uh, able to be applied uh, with an outcomes that were mutually acceptable to both sides without going to, to civil court. Um, some conferences have, as you know, have been imposing some very high financial demands mm -hmm. above and beyond uh, a year or so of apportionments, above and beyond a fee related to unfunded pension liability, if there is such uh, li liability. Mm -hmm. Um but something, a percentage of value of the local church's assets. Uh, most conferences did not impose that. Some have imposed a fee of as high as 30% or 50%, I think, the California yeah. conference has imposed, which Calpac, is the deal killer. CalPAC and, and Baltimore, Washington have both uh, put a 50% property value on. And I'm, I'm remembering now uh, Eastern Pennsylvania Annual Conference also has an NCLL lawsuit going on with what I, I want to say 50 churches uh, because they they have been given very burdensome uh, fiscal right and, and there's some very fine lawyers uh, with that organization mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going to throw stones at them but the uh, the class action suits that they have filed mm -hmm. um, are going to face some some significant procedural hurdles in some jurisdictions. Mm -hmm. This whole issue of church property law is a state law question, and states can address it in different ways. A handful of states, Florida, New Jersey, Michigan, uh, as a practical matter, Georgia and California, resolve these church property matters when a civil court addresses them by simply determining what the denomination has said and then deferring to that. Right. Most states, however, apply ordinary property and trust and corporation law that would apply to anybody, mm -hmm. irrespective of the religious identity of the parties. Would that be the neutral principles? Uh, That's standard? the neutral principles of law method. And okay. those cases, outcomes are based on the facts of a particular case. Okay. You look at the deeds of the local church and its articles of incorporation and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, in states that apply neutral principles of law, by definition, you can't have a one-size-fits-all outcome, mm -hmm. um, and which is what you're looking for in a class action suit. In so class action suit, suit, you're not looking for neutral principles. You are looking for a new standard of um, judicial decisions uh, changing well, the status quo? I, I'd, I'd phrase it a little differently. Okay. A class action suit is looking for a judicial decision that would apply equally to everybody. Okay. Rather than uh, getting in, in the nitty gritty, everybody for in each the church. class. Okay, I understand. Um, but in a in a and in a state like um, uh, say Texas, for example, mm -hmm. uh, where neutral principles of law apply, uh, there is no one size collective answer. 
it's it's a church by church by church analysis okay. based on the facts of the particular case. Now in, in Florida, where I think the NC LLS, yeah, National Center for Life and Liberty, yes. Florida is one of those deference states, right? Where the the challenge isn't that a a class action suit doesn't really fit with neutral principles. That's a case by case by case determination, but this this roadblock that you're going to find where the state court is just going to defer to the denomination. Uh, and lower courts are bound to follow the Florida Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. So you're going to lose in lo- the lower courts and hope that the Florida Supreme Court grants review of the case and changes the law. Um, but most most states uh, are going to apply um, ordinary trust law, mm-hmm. which requires something other than what's in the Book of Discipline. Uh, in order for there to be an actual enforceable legal trust. Mm -hmm. Uh, The owner of the property, the local church, Mm -hmm. has to put something in writing. And in Methodist circles, local Methodist churches often have in their deeds and in their articles of incorporation. And so uh, then the question becomes, in that state, can that language be lawfully changed? Right. Uh, Which was an issue in... uh, in, in Texas, uh, in the Masterson case, I think you've talked about that before. For and our more listeners, in the SMU case, for the listeners, let me put it in my own words to make sure it's it's yeah. it's hitting. Uh, whenever this stuff enters litigation, the state sometimes can and will make a ruling on whether or not the property can or should be handed off to the local congregation based on what is in writing in legal documents. So, if there's a trust. Uh, or, or any kind of property documents that have anything in writing that gives the property under the, the, the ownership of the denomination and designates the locals as trustees, that's really bad. But if there's anything in writing that doesn't have that or that even stipulates that the building and assets belong to the local congregation, then you might have better legal grounds, grounds to stand on. How did I do I think that? that's a fair way to put it. Okay. Um, it's important, I think, for uh, local church pastors and, and lay leaders in churches to understand that there's a difference between being the owner of the property mm-hmm. and whether or not there's a trust over that property in favor of a non-owner. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's almost always the case that the legal owner, the legal title is in the name of the local church. But sometimes in that title or in that deed, the owner has delegated to somebody else a right to determine who gets to use and occupy the property. That's what a trust is. Okay. And so, for example, if you own an apartment complex building and you sign a lease as the landlord, that's giving somebody else a right to occupy that property for the term of the lease. Mm -hmm. But you're still the owner uh, of the property. Uh, but it's just someone else has a right to occupy it. Right. Well, in in a trust, uh, the 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 owner sometimes creates a right to occupy or determine who gets to use the property to somebody else. And often, the case in in local Methodist deeds and articles, that right has been given to the denomination. That's interesting. So usually, the way people talk about it is. 
the denomination is the owner and they allow the local church to be trustees of the, the owner of the, the property, but you're saying it's actually the opposite, where the local church yes. is the owners, but they have deferred authority about who can use the property to the denomination. That's correct. And, and the, these issues that I'm talking about, and it'll be helpful to, to understand is they rarely arise in Baptist churches or Catholic churches. Okay. Uh, they will arise in, in, if you think of a spectrum of forms of church government, in the middle, you've got Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Methodists, Lutherans, yeah. and so forth. And at the opposite ends, you've got Congregationalists, Baptists, and a very strictly hierarchical organization, the Catholic Church. Yeah, yeah. These issues of the tug of war between control don't come up in a Catholic Church because the, the legal owner in the Catholic world mm -hmm is usually not the local church, it's right. not the local parish, it's the diocese to begin with. Right. So this trust right doesn't even come up. Mm -hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, in, in Baptist circles, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they are very congregationalist. So there is no district or regional or national body to kind of have a yin and yang with. Yeah, that's uh, what congregationalists... But in these intermediate forms where power is shared, yeah. uh, that's where these issues arise. Yeah, for, for lay people watching this, a congregationalist system is a non-hierarchical system. There's usually not any kind of bishop or diocese or annual conference. There's voluntary associations that they associate with, but the, they don't ever exercise uh, anything like the authority or control that you're finding in, in uh, these middle-of-the-road or, or uh, very hierarchical— Intermediate forms of government. Yeah. yeah. For example, even the most well-known Baptist organization, the Southern Baptist Convention— mm -hmm is not really a denomination right. in the normal sense of the word. Uh, even their local churches have 100% autonomy to begin right. with. Yes. Let's let's retrace our steps a little bit because um, some texture to the history of real estate and disaffiliation in the United States. Um, I recently interviewed someone who came out of the ELCA, and that was, of course, the Lutheran mainline denomination, and they went through this split a while back, and they were able to do it without much litigation because the ELCA did provide a sort of way out that I would consider akin to— there used to be a, a paragraph that was active in the United Methodist Book of Discipline, 2548.2, uh, which allowed a local church to transfer to another evangelical denomination— mm -hmm. And it was a very broad language that, to my knowledge, was used dozens, hundreds of times in various annual conferences behind closed doors with NDAs where they would negotiate the terms on which a local church could disaffiliate, do any kind of payout, leave the denomination quietly, and join another denomination. But then our judicial council, whenever we invented 2553, uh, adopted, ratified 2553, just said 2548 is now no good. 2553 is the sole disaffiliation passage now, which I've always thought was an odd decision. Did you do any uh, cases before 2553 in the UMC under paragraph 2548? Was that anything that you ever touched? Uh, uh, candidly, no. Uh, I'm familiar okay. with that provision, and it, its language is interesting. Whether or not it will be reactivated when 2553 sunsets— mm -hmm. And, and no successor provision to 2553 is added at the next general conference mm -hmm. um, is remains to be seen. 
Yeah. Um, assuming that it is reactivated, it, it's phrased in an interesting way. It says that as part of that 2548 process, the um, uh, the conference will transfer title to the new denomination mm -hmm. that the local church is, is joining. But in almost all cases, the conference isn't the title owner to begin with. The, the local church is. Uh, at most, all the conference has is what's called the beneficial interest, which is a synonym for a trust interest. Well, let me let me stop you real quick, because when my churches went through the disaffiliation process, we took our vote in April and then finalized all the paperwork, and then we were submitted legal documentation from the annual conference. I want to say it was a quitclaim deed. A quitclaim deed, yes. So you don't have to be the owner of a property to issue a quitclaim deed? Well, what, it, what you have to understand what a quitclaim deed is. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> yeah, and, Help me. <laughs> and and quitclaim deeds, to, to uh, give an example where they're often used in, in your neck of the woods, uh, in the oil patch of Oklahoma and Texas, is an, uh, a um, oil company wants to come in and drill a well. Mm -hmm. And rather, and, and there, there is a, a big pool of oil under the ground that... Um, is underneath land owned by a lot of people. Right. And so the landman from the um, oil company goes knocking on farmhouse door to farmhouse door saying that um, we want you we, we want you to uh, transfer uh, uh, your uh, whatever mineral interest you may have mm -hmm. to us. Uh, an exchange for which we will have a shared unitized uh, well and we'll farm out royalties okay. to the different surface landowners. And the the farmer doesn't know what mineral interest he does or doesn't have. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what the oil company does is they give him a quitclaim deed to sign. And the farmer says, well, whatever rights I may have, I quit, and I convey to you. So um, in in the, the Methodist property world, what happens is as, as part of a 2553 dismissal, both sides executed a disaffiliation agreement. Uh, some conferences require the local church to form a new corporation and transfer its assets to a new corporation. The local church pays the conference X dollars, and in consideration of that, in exchange for that, the uh, denomination through the conference quits any property rights it may have. Now, whether there's a valid trust or not is often in dispute. Mm -hmm. So the parties don't want to say there is a trust or there isn't a trust because that potentially is in dispute. Mm -hmm. So a quit claim deed is used as a convenient device. To, to wrap a bow around it and tie up that string. And the, the conference says, in effect, whatever rights we may have, we relinquish and convey to the local church. So it's not necessarily uh, we own this and we're giving it. It's more we might own this and we're not going to try and claim it ever. Well, they're not even saying we might own it. 
we're saying we might have a trust right over it. Okay. Um, usually it's not disputed that the, the name on the title and the only name on the title as legal owner is the local church. Mm-hmm. But the, where the dispute is, is whether or not uh, that local owner has uh, conveyed a trust interest that's legally enforceable or not. The denomination says it has, mm-hmm. and therefore they can control who gets to use it. It's sort of a sort of Damocles that's hanging over the head of that local church. And as part of this financial settlement, they're saying we're going to remove that sort of Damocles or that potential sword. We're going to give up whatever. That's such a good reference, but most people aren't going to know it. In, in ancient Greece, there was a, a sword of Damocles that hung over the throne of uh, the king, whoever was there, with the knowledge that it could drop at any time. So it, right. it creates a state of just perpetual paranoia and anxiety about this this impending harm. Right. And so whenever the before a, a, a conference gives the quick claim deed, then hypothetically they are this sword that could fall on a local church at any point in time as they show up as uh, the 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 ones in charge of this trust who can then dispossess a, a congregation of its property. Right. If if the claimed trust right is legally enforceable and valid, the denomination could evict uh, non-cooperative owners. Um, See, that's uh, the thing that really it, it it drives people and, and like seize me nuts. functional control of the property. Right. So so people like me who look at it go. If you tell me that on our legal documentation it says we are owners, then that's the end of the case for me. That's that you know. But but what other legal experts say is no. Actually, if there's a trust in place, and the annual conference has been put in trust of this property, they can dispossess the owners. In which case, that just makes no cognitive sense to me. But that's, that's what everybody the, you're, says. You're absolutely right. Uh, oftentimes, denominations will utter reassuring things mm-hmm. to pastors and local congregations saying, you're the owner of the property. We have no interest in becoming the owner. Mm-hmm. And everybody breathes a sigh of relief. But what's what's unsaid is, but we claim a trust right mm-hmm. where we get to t- determine who really gets to use the property, whether you're the owner or not. And that's now, that's the same in all fifty states. That's the legal case that they make whenever they try and uh, file under twenty five forty nine to declare exigent circumstances and take the assets. They this is the uniform case they make. We have been put in trust of this property. We need to dispossess uh, the owners of what they've right. accrued. Here. And, and they they say that across the board, coast to coast, based okay. on what they have put in their uh, denominational constitution. Okay. But for example, you you have a house in a subdivision. And you've got a homeowners association that has articles and rules and so on and so forth. Uh, but you're, it's only your name on the deed. Mm-hmm. You're the one that's paying the mortgage, right. cutting the grass, paying the insurance. If, if I were to drive through your neighborhood and, and take a liking to your home and was able to persuade your homeowners association to change its rules to say that I have a trust over your property, mm-hmm. And can determine who gets to live there mm-hmm. and occupy it and use it. Your reaction would be, "What? Right? Yeah, what, that's what crazy. What gives them the right? Uh huh. Yeah. Well, under ordinary neutral principles of law, standard trust law applicable in most states, only the owner has the right to create a trust on behalf of somebody else. 
So what's in the denominational constitution is something that the would-be beneficiary has put in writing. Mm -hmm. But if that's to be effective, you as the owner has to have to put something in writing, either in your deeds or in your articles of incorporation. And in, in the Methodist, in the Episcopal and Presbyterian world, you rarely find that. Sometimes you will, but but it's it's the exception rather than the rule. Mm-hmm. In the Methodist world, though, there is this long tradition of of um, a trust. Yeah, trust clause. And so you yeah. will often see trust language in local deeds and articles. Mm-hmm. In the Episcopal and Presbyterian world, uh, this trust issue, at least in expressed written trust, didn't really surface until the late 1970s, early 1980s. Mm-hmm. But in the Methodist world, it dates back to the 1760s. Right, yeah, yeah. But even in the Presbyterian and Episcopalian worlds, even though they didn't have that language in their deeds very often, there was still massive litigation, and in a lot of places, denominational authorities came out on top, right? Well, um, denominational authorities in the Episcopal and the Presbyterian world came out on top in uh, deference states, where ordinary rules of law aren't applied, and the courts, as a matter of policy, just adopt what the denomination has said. Uh, Or there were cases in neutral principles of law states where um, the the court found uh, a trust through language that was indirect or or, uh, um, inferential, in, in some articles or some deeds. Um, sometimes courts will find a trust for reasons of fairness and equity mm-hmm. to avoid uh, unjust enrichment uh, called an implied or constructive trust where the denomination donated all the land and funded the building to begin with. Okay. Uh, and so in fairness, they, they find a trust exists. But, but there were many, many cases in in particularly the Presbyterian world, uh, where courts ruled in favor of the local congregation, that there was no actual enforceable uh, trust because there was nothing under ordinary trust law where the, that the owner uh, declared a clear intent to create a trust. Let me sum up what I think I've understood us to be operating around, that, that this is not an area necessarily a federal law, First Amendment protection of uh, division of church and state, but different states have different norms established in jurisprudence, the standards for ruling on cases. Some states just say whatever the church, largest church body says, that's what's going to happen. We're not going to get involved. We're not, we're not wading into these waters. But a lot of other states say, no, we can wade into these waters with neutral principles, uh, at least in the case of property. So we're not going to make any... What what happened in the Oklahoma City first UMC case? I was there in court for that. The They argued, we're not asking the court to rule on any doctrine on the LGBTQ, sexual ethics, behavior, sexual immorality, none of that. We're just looking at, here's what the denomination put in writing so far as the process of how they're going to lead through 2553. They didn't do it. They, they invented new stuff that they didn't make any other churches do. They didn't abide by the timelines and the stipulations of these things that they put in writing. They have acted in bad faith by neutral principles of the law. We, uh, we need intervention. So 
what you and I have talked about privately before is ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. You have said that it's only in the case of fraud that a state court can get involved and overturn the decisions of an ecclesiastical authority. The lawyers here are making the case that they don't need to substantiate fraud. They just need to have neutral principles of the law applied in this particular case, which, as you've said, is not a class action. It's not a, a uniform policy on all churches. It's just intervention in this one church right here. So is the, the case that they're making here, you've reviewed some of the documentation, but not all, as for obvious reasons. You have your own, mm-hmm. own cases you're doing. But it, it seems to me, well, and to Judge Timmons, who ruled on it, she didn't use the word fraud. She didn't make any direct allegations. She did infer bad faith. Does it seem to you that the decision can be made and uh, upheld based on neutral principles, or do you think that that standard of fraud really does need to be? Uh, yeah, let, let me let me talk a little bit about the Oklahoma yeah, please uh, do. litigation. Please, uh, with a caveat that I've not. If the court has issued a written opinion, I've not read it. Okay. Uh, I've not reviewed the record. I've not read the briefs. I'm just familiar with general press press reports. Okay. Um, before commenting on that case uh, particularly, um, let me draw a distinction between uh, the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine, where courts abstain from getting involved, okay, versus the different methods they use when they do get involved. Yeah. So uh, courts clearly have authorities long established to decide matters of church property. They don't have to abstain just because the parties are are religious in some fashion. So let me stop right there, because one of the things we're having the special called conference on Saturday, the judge mandated that we have to do our best to recreate the conditions of the April vote for first church. Uh, mm-hmm. To get the same benefits because you know all the disaffiliated churches left and their votes are gone with them, so it's now going to be hostile if they come before the the conference in October. So they've invited delegates from 55 churches that have disaffiliated to come back and vote this Saturday. And what the conference has said is this is an internal church matter. They cannot interfere with how we conduct ourselves with respect to to real estate or any of that. That that totally interrupts our our church law. This, this disrupts the First Amendment, and what I just heard you say is, no, there's a long, long history of the federal and state government getting involved in property disputes in local church matters and denominational bodies. This is not anything new. Have I understood you correctly? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I was momentarily distracted it's by grandkid <laughs> carpool instruction. It's just um, fine. So, but I, I think it's good for me to recapitulate. The, uh, the, I think you got the general flow of what I was saying. The conference is saying this is an unprecedented overreach on the part of state government. It has no right to get involved in they, – they say it's not a property dispute. This right. is a theological – Yeah, that, that, that's a valid uh, – I'm not saying it's necessarily a valid argument, but uh-huh. it's a valid and important and significant issue to be answered and, and addressed. Okay. Um, courts, civil courts, state government uh, has the authority to decide church property matters when they can do so without having to rely on religious doctrine in mm-hmm. general. Mm-hmm. 
there are some things that state courts cannot exercise their jurisdiction to decide and referee that they have to abstain from. Right. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court has a body of law that collectively has been called the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine that draws that boundary line. Okay. So, for example, a, a civil court has no business deciding whether or not uh, Pastor Jones is uh, preaching sound doctrine. Right. Or whether Sister Mary should be baptized and so forth. Um, and we're all agreed on that. Right. We, and, we and all, so yes. whatever church, separation of church and state does or doesn't mean, everybody's agreed about that. Yes. Now, the the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine says that courts, civil courts cannot get involved in matters of faith and practice and, quote, internal ecclesiastical administration. So the conference... So, so no matter um, how arbitrary or capricious or uneven or unfair or inconsistent the denomination may be in applying its own rules, mm-hmm. a civil court can't jump in to referee that. That's that's a matter of internal ecclesiastical administration. And the conference in Oklahoma is saying, well, that's precisely what's going on. Well, but I um, think I think the 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 lawsuit that First Church brought said that they wanted the court to get involved on those premises under neutral principles. Yeah, and 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 now a, a court can get involved if the lawsuit that was filed was simply to have the court declare who has what property rights. Now, I, I don't know who initially filed suit and how the petition reads and what the court was asked to decide in the prayer for relief, but your garden variety, typical... Um, church property lawsuit mm-hmm. when filed by a local church simply is asking the judge to decide whether or not the denomination's claimed trust is or is not valid under state law. See, and I don't think right. Judge Timmons spoke to that in her decision. The now, that, that, That's your ordinary church property case in which so, a court would have jurisdiction. Now, if the lawsuit... Mm-hmm was filed to say, Judge, they are applying 2553 in an improper way. They did that. They're doing X, Y, and Z wrong. Yes. Uh, the, do not, the conference will say, well, that's a matter of internal ecclesiastical administration, Which Judge. they did. You've got no yes. business weighing in on that. Yes. But, but there's an exception to the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine that does allow courts to weigh in. And that is if the application of the internal rules by the conference or the denomination is more than unfair, more than inconsistent or arbitrary, but is um, in the in the uh, implementation or pursuit of fraud, then a court can weigh in. And so the conference is saying there's no fraud here. Mm-hmm. This is just they just don't like how we're doing things in applying our 2553 process. And too bad, you know, they, you can't right, yeah. redress that, Your Honor. Yeah. Uh, whereas the 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 conference of the local church is going to say one of two things. They're going to say, well, you do have jurisdiction uh, because fraud is being committed. Mm-hmm. 
Or they're going to say, well, this isn't a matter of internal ecclesiastical administration at all. Mm-hmm. This is just a property matter. That's the one they did. Yeah, they didn't and, allege and, fraud. And all think. we're asking you to decide is whether this trust claim is or isn't valid. Okay, wait, maybe I just understood. Okay, if, well, no, there is no circumstance in which a, uh, a court can rule on theological matters. They can only rule on property dispute matters. But even then, sometimes they just defer to an ecclesiastical authority. But in some states, a church can say, well, but so but they can say, they can allege fraud, but that's not what they did here. They just allege, they just said, we want, we're having a property dispute, so get right, involved. Now in, so in Oklahoma, let's talk about Oklahoma yes. law for a second. Uh, courts have jurisdiction uh, to uh, decide a church property matter, mm-hmm. and a, a state court can do that in one of two ways. They can apply ordinary trust and corporation and property law, mm-hmm. or they can defer uh, to, to the denomination mm-hmm. as a matter of state law policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I haven't uh, done an analysis of Oklahoma case law uh, in in a few years, mm-hmm. but my understanding has been that in 1973, the Oklahoma Supreme Court decided the Cimarron case, which uh, adopted the deference method. So even if this is not a matter of internal ecclesiastical, internal ecclesiastical administration Mm -hmm. and is just a garden variety property matter. Mm -hmm. The local church is facing a daunting challenge because the way Oklahoma courts resolve property matters is to defer to the denomination. Yeah. Let me Perhaps that law has changed. No, perhaps they're seeking to change that law, but that's my understanding of the legal landscape in Oklahoma. My, 